You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People, and our topic today is the Bible and women's spirituality, and our guest is Cheryl Bridges-Johns. She is the Robert E. Fisher Professor of Spiritual Renewal and Christian Formation at Pentecostal Theological Seminary, and that is in Cleveland, Tennessee. I thought that Cleveland was only in Ohio. No, man, all I've the things so we much. learn, all the things we learn on this <laughs> podcast, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, in all seriousness, it was pretty great talking to Cheryl and just hearing her experiences. Someone who has been studying and involved in and participating, sounds very active in uh, feminist theology, women's studies for quite a long time. So, I like to hear about her journey and all the things that she's learned about the Bible and how to do theology in ways that uh, are pretty creative and pretty new and I think really helpful. And she's a, you know, a serious theologian, obviously. Coming out of the Pentecostal movement and that history, which doesn't have the same kind of, I guess, baggage, we can call it, that a lot of evangelicals and fundamentalists have sort of taken for granted. So it's really nice hearing Cheryl's perspective on a very important topic from a point of view that maybe we don't hear all the time. I think it's just, uh, it's a good conversation. I think we should get to it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. There's something about the presence, the presence of God in the cosmos. And I have a very, you know, robust pneumatology that's related to my view of scripture. It's related to my view of life. That the creation is inhabited by the Spirit, held by the Spirit, vivified by the Spirit, my body filled with the Spirit, uh, the whole world will one day be filled with that Spirit. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. It's great to have you on today. It's good to be here. Before we get jumping into some of the the heavy Heavy hitting today of the of the topic at hand. Maybe talk a little bit about your, um, maybe a little of your spiritual bio, where you grew up, what you studied, how you became interested in things like women's studies and 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 spirituality. Yeah, I grew up in South Carolina, and I am fourth generational Pentecostal believer. My great grandmother went to a camp meeting. It was interracial in the Jim Crow era in 1907 and received what was called the baptism of the Holy Spirit and expelled from the Methodist Church. So she founded the church that I grew up in. And I grew up in a church that has always affirmed women and women's voice, preached my first sermon at 16, uh, went to college, majored in Spanish and religious education. Uh, you know, Wheaton Graduate School, the whole evangelical world. My husband and I 
couple of weeks after we were married, we went to Wheaton and got an MA there and taught in a Bible college in North Dakota for a while uh, and then went back to, to work on a PhD and religious education at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But I have to qualify that that was the former Southern Baptist Theological oh, Seminary. Yeah. Yep. B- before things went, well, re- really south. Really south. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you, so you, you grew up in a context where women were already affirmed. Yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of, a, given the culture of the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was great. A lot of affirmation. But then, you know, there were always, um, the it's always the paradox of exclusion and embrace, so to speak, in which women were, uh, you know, in religious movements that using Max Weber, begin among the poor, um, the first uh, decades are highly charismatic and prophetic, and women are are often leaders in those movements. The prophetic gets marginalized and as things are institutionalized, and that's mm. why you can trace that in the Pentecostal movement. You can trace that in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> right? You can trace it in history. Every, you know, all the religious movements that start out with this kind of fervor and um, so the the prophetic gives way to what Weber called the priestly, you know, the ordination and the, and who's in charge and who's going to be a bishop and who's going to be ordained. And usually in those discussions, it sorts out to where women are marginalized, and and that that's what happened in my tradition as a whole. Uh, women were evangelists; uh, they were missionaries. But it was rare to find one who was a pastor, senior pastor. Or, or I mean, goodness, we had them. We had a lot of them. Most of them planted their own churches, planted several churches. Uh, and then after the church would get going, a man would come in and set it in order better, and as he thought. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a culture of exclusion and embrace, using Nurse Law Volk's yeah. terms. It's a familiar pattern, too. So, how did your interest in women's studies or feminist theology develop? Was it out of these experiences? And, and when did you start wanting to look into this, you know, more seriously, like on an academic level? Yeah, I think that the foundation of it was laid in my, in my childhood and, and that sense of that matriarchal church and, and all of that. But as when I was at Southern Seminary, I studied the theology classes and read James Cone and Letty Russell and others, and that sparked my interest. Um, I did my dissertation on Paula Freire, the uh, Latin American educator, actually studied mm. with him a summer at Boston College um, and wrote my, and, you know, sort of tried to engage his ideas of conscientization, raising consciousness among the oppressed and that dovetails into women. How do you raise consciousness um, for women? What does that mean? Explain what it means to raise consciousness. For what? Um, it helps to help people move from being an object in the world that's acted upon, uh, that believes that fate determines things, to become a subject where you are acting upon the world. And, you know, the history of liberal education, liberal arts, is the liberating arts of so, it's nothing yeah. new to history, it's just that it has been kept from certain groups of people, that capacity to be a subject over the world. And that's something that, that really struck you at a very early age? I just find that to be pretty amazing, frankly. I mean, you, 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 were, you were awakened to this. You went, you went to seminary for this purpose. Is that right? Well, I, 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 I went that? to seminary, you know, because... I was called, and I wanted to serve the church, and but I had already had this, um, you know, when we were at Wheaton, my husband went to the bookstore at the college and brought home Letty Russell and Nancy Scanzoni, all were meant to be, oh my Lord, you know, that just changed us both, and, and we were already kind of down that line informally, you know, your informal yeah. theology, but that book helped set 
us both on a trajectory. And What's the name of that book again? And tell us a little bit about what's in it, because that's, that's not going to be common knowledge, I think, to a lot of people, including especially the men, like me and Jared. Yeah, that's what, this was one of the first evangelical feminist books or evangelical egalitarian books. Uh, of course, the word complementarian was used in the 70s and 80s to mean that men and women's gifts were of equal value and they should be used in leadership in complementary ways. And then it kind of got hijacked by John Piper and Wade Rudum to mean what they call it to be. But that book you know, just sent shockwaves in the evangelical world in the 70s, 76, I think is when it came out. Mm. Um, and it it was just a, one of those seminal works that you point to in time. Yeah. What, what was the name of it again? All We're Meant to Be. Well, how does your understanding of feminist theology and spirituality, maybe take us back, and, and you've been around, uh, you sounds like, for a few decades or, or more in this space. How, is it, how has it changed over the years, and how has it changed the conversation around the Bible and theology and God, this idea of, of feminist uh, theology and women's studies? That's interesting. You know, in the days when I was first reading, I was reading Lady Russell and the forming of, of flourishing human communities and partnership was a, a big theme of that era. Uh, that was part of the second wave of feminism. And then I think we had the, this other wave, which I, I'm, I'm kind of reactionary against that wave of the Helen, what they call the Helen Gurley Brown feminism, which is hard for, I think, my generation to understand in terms of sexuality as power and how you, you know, how would advocate using that. Um, I think some of those assumptions are being re-addressed uh, in light of the Me Too movement and and mm. disparity of power and all of that uh, in, rela- in relationships and things. But I see the uh, in the church, uh, it has, you know, things come in waves and then there's backlash. And we, we went into the 80s backlash with the... Uh, Oh, uh, Phyllis Shafley and, and all of that. Uh, and then I think we're in another time of backlash where it's um, a pretty strong and virulent reaction to women in of power, women who are have sense of, of self-authorization or women with agency. Um, it's, a, it's, it's just a difficult time to watch women who are as kind and as good and yet as strong and powerful as Beth Moore be attacked so viciously. And, um, you know, we watched uh, Rachel Held Evans become just constantly under attack. So when you say backlash, what what do you, you mean backlash from the culture at large or from men in particular? It's it's, it's both, I think, and often the church mirrors that. Uh, It's the culture at large, for sure. but it's also, I believe, found in the church with the rock. I, I did not see this coming. And I wrote about this in a little blog piece I did for the Junia Project. I called Letter to Young Feminist, you know, from an older one. Um, but I said in that letter, I didn't see this coming. I did not see the kinder, gentler forms of patriarchy. Uh, you know, I grew up with the John R. Rice uh misogynist kind. Oh, yeah. John Rice? Yeah. Yes. You know, his book, uh, uh, Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers, that kind of hard stuff. Okay. Uh, but now you get these kind of, the beauty of complementarianism, and it's so covered and, and cloaked in things that make it sound what it's not. And you have this, the you know, this new neo-reform reform group. Mm-hmm. I just didn't see that coming. I, for some reason, just didn't. And it took me and I think a lot of my generation by surprise, like, wow, where did this come from? I thought we where were did it come things. From? Yeah. I, that's well, what, in, you know, in some ways, I think what it sounds like is um, when things become less and less culturally acceptable, rather than taking kind of the substance of it, which is 
you know, maybe we need to divest power and maybe we need to be more uh, equal-minded and egalitarian. That seems too difficult. So the easier thing to do is kind of repackage the old substantive thing in a new glossy fancy packaging and saying, well, no, no, we just have to, you just have to really love your spouse in better ways or, so that's kind of how I think of it as like, I I think of it just growing up more in an evangelical tradition. It was, we didn't really ever want to, you know, don't touch the substance of what we're believing, but to be culturally relevant meant to just dress it up differently. Yeah. And and hidden beneath it is all that terrible stuff that hasn't been addressed. And I, I liken it to growing up in the South in the separate but equal era. You know, it didn't have the harsh brutality of the Jim Crow era, but the prejudice and the anger and all of that was still there. It just got dressed up in, in language of like, oh, we're all equal, but we each, you know, each race has their separate sphere and on and on. Well, it's. I think we're sort of in that, like you said, it just gets dressed up a little bit and cleaned up. And um, it's, it's no longer permissible to say that women are not ontologically or the same as men, that they're not in the image of God. Whereas a century ago, you could get by with that. Um, but now you have to acknowledge, at least most people do, that women are made in the image of God. And then you have to do a lot of work to say, but, and, and the separate but equal is never equal. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that analogy because I do sense that within the idea of the kind of new complementarianism, you mentioned like a John Piper or Wayne Grudem, where it is kind of that separate but equal. And that's what it is. Like, we're, 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 we're different, but we're equal. And then when you look at the, what that actually means, it becomes it starts to break down and saying yeah we're equal except that you have to submit and i don't uh, well that's kind of an important difference <laughs> that's a that's an important difference and, and and you know all this we're equal but we're still in a big hierarchy that that fascinates me. yeah that probably frustrates you too oh yeah <laughs> well see here's the thing okay i had a um an online conversation with someone not long ago who kept insisting on, but the biblical view of marriage, me- meaning male-female relationship and marriage. And so, you know, the Bible always comes into this. Always. Uh, you know, so and that, that might even be like the root of this, maybe not like what the Bible says, but how the Bible is used and how the Bible, you know, is assumed to be understood and these kinds of things. So, so you know, riff a little bit on that, Cheryl, because you've thought a lot about this. How... How does the Bible help you? Mm, yeah. Well, I know how it hurts you. It can be used that way, but how does it help you? Well, I think going back to my tradition that I grew up in, uh, we uh, did not take a lot of these texts, uh, women keeping silent and so forth, literal. And uh, we did that a hundred years before others did, you know, and we were ordaining women when nobody else was and coming out of the holiness movement of the late 1800s that began doing that in 1859. Um, So, you know, the argument at at that time was there is a redemptive hermeneutical thread that you would read with the same thing about slavery, and that there are times in which the culture um, is so constraining, i.e. the culture of the Roman household, uh, the paterfamilias household, you know, Paul mm-hmm. Paul struggled trying to create the household of God in the culture of Rome. Yeah. That must have been, I mean, I sometimes see him walking the floor when he's writing these epistles. Like, what do you do with this, uh, you know, Galatians on one hand, and then yet, oh, we've got the church at Ephesus over here. And um, so I do think that we we don't like tension. We don't like struggle. Um, you know, my understanding of Scripture is that it is um, spirit word and that they should always be hyphenated. They're married. Hmm. And that um, scripture is, um, uh, oh goodness, uh, the, the same spirit who inspired this, the text or what is present in the reading, preaching, teaching this, of that text. And it's a way in which the text is no longer a flat artifact, but more of a 
more of a space, mm-hmm. more of a, a thin space, and or an icon or a sacrament. And in that sense, it's uh, it is a you know it's the it, it's a portal, I believe, into the world of God. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So not so much a rule book. Oh, no. I mean, you know, you can find proof texts and shoot them across the bow. And it's happened, I think, (laughs) on a lot of issues. So you use the phrase, but I I want to get back to this phrase. I think I heard you say a redemptive hermeneutic or something like that, right? Yeah, a redemptive hermeneutic. Yeah. Explain that a little bit more fully because I think I know what you're saying, but that sounds like a really key concept to keep in mind as we read the Bible. I think it is that there is God's glorious, beautiful cosmos creation that's been marred by sin, and the, and God's economy, God's plan of salvation is unmarring, re-transforming, making it new. Scripture is part of that plan. I believe it's um oh using John Webster, uh, it's a it's a sanctified vessel in the plan of God that hmm. God sets aside and says, "Hey, I'm going to use this for my redemption for my my plan." And in that, uh, though it it is. It's drafted in history by people, and so it's a human document. But you can't, it also has that redemptive thrust that, you know, it's moving us to something. There's something better. And I love teasing out in the text, you know, like, what's the better? You know, like, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just like uh, looking at bookends, the Garden of uh, Genesis and the Garden there at the Resurrection, and who's talking to whom? And what's being said, and who's—it's just fascinating. Or, uh, you know, what is this newer plan? And I just did a a paper. It's a chapter in a book that friend of mine and I are editing, and I called it um, "Job and the Transformation of Benevolent Patriarchy." 
Okay. And, <laughs> you got my interest. Go ahead. Yeah. And for me, Job, you know, this ancient, mysterious book uh, is sort of a prototype of the old and new creation. And there is this beginning place in, in Job where everything looks pretty good. You know, he's got 10 children. He has wealth. He has sons who have homes and they have parties and have their sisters over. But clearly, and Job, he's a, he's one of the good guys. He's like a Russell Moore kind of patriarch. <laughs> he's really considerate, yeah. good. He, he offers sacrifices just in, you know, just in case somebody sinned here, that kind of guy. And, and then you get this maelstrom that comes in and everything gets thrown out of whack and the scanning that is going on in that in that chaos, um, moving us, I think, to the climax there of the speeches of God and using uh, Old Testament scholar at Columbia Seminary, um, William. Uh, hold on, here I got the book right here. Uh, Young. No, uh, William Brown. Bill Brown. Oh, Brown. Yeah, Brown. Uh, right. His work on. Uh, wonder and creation you know he said uh job was in need of being bewilded and so you know god just sort of uh decenters job because if you look at chapter was it 29 i think of job it's i call it the glory of patriarchy he just talks about how good he was and 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 nobody can argue with that and and so i don't think the way of taking down some top this benevolent patriarchy is the approach that Job's friends had, which was to condemn, you know, you've sinned, you're bad. So this bewilding of Job, he's taken into the cosmos and he becomes like with the beast and the behemoth, you know, I made him just like I made you. And oh, just this sort of decentering of Job where it's, it's wonder, it's wonder, you know, like, oh, he's taken out of his um, obsessive compulsive, um, good evangelical fundamentalist uh, spirituality, and he's taken into this grand place that he is decentered. Coming back, um, then you have I think this newer Job, and you get I think you get hints there of this new creation coming through that he has ten children, only the daughters are named, um, mm -hmm. and they get an inheritance along with their brothers. Um, there's a sense there that something something was just not right at the beginning, and it's being made right, even though what was at the beginning of Job's of the book is is pretty good, and and I, it's moving Job out of this kind of rule oriented what we we're just talking about faith into this faith of being bewilded and I, I say in the in this chapter um he was ravaged with suffering but he was using uh i think it's john Doan's language but he was ravished with wonder hmm. so he goes from being ravaged and and just torn apart to being just lavished on by god with wonder um and what does that do? Uh, so there's a redemptive thread again in Job that's just there, that is just so wonderful to tease out. Hey everyone, my name is Skip Sorrell and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. One thing I've appreciated about this podcast is Jarrett and Pete's wry way of making biblical paradox a beautiful and God-ordained intention, leading us to a fuller life of faith rather than a confusing mess to run away from. If you've gotten something from this freak podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Brock Beasley, Nolan Archer, Angela Smith, Denise Howard, Katie Coleman, Book Notes, a. Todd Rivetti, 
and Roseanne Hennessy. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. So can can I maybe summarize what what you're saying in in this reading of of Job, which I thought is it's very interesting that when the the friends are sort of trying to point out Job's mistakes here, that what Job needed wasn't judgment, wasn't condemnation, because he's a he's a good uh, what you call him a someone who's uh, good in his patriarchy and. Ben, yeah, benevolent patriarch. So that that condemnation isn't isn't needed. But what's needed is a larger context, a larger sense of of uh, wonder and awe at how grand and big this is. This is bigger than you. And so, rather than trying to control your little universe, maybe let go and see that there is something bigger going on than just you. So, how how can you maybe speak to you talked about earlier writing a letter to younger feminists and. How do you see, I'm, I'm curious because um, I have some interactions like this where it feels like in our kind of outrage culture or social media where it seems like we really do just want to shame people into new ways of thinking about feminism or equality. And what, kind of what's your take on that kind of activis- activism that's just about kind of judging and how do we, how do we help we, we're not God, but how do we instill that sense of wonderment and awe outside of just judgment and condemnation and sh- public shaming? Wow, that's such a good question, isn't it? That's what we do around here, Cheryl. <laughs> we have no answers, but yeah. we can ask questions every once in a while. You just want to sit in a while because I just sometimes, you know, I go down to the level of just snark, calling out, just, oh, but realizing that that's just not gonna that's not gonna move anyone very far at least uh, in that makes me feel better in that sense I do draw then on my tradition as a Pentecostal that what what transforms us and it, it, you know deconstruction is part of the transformation but it is I, I believe the presence of God in a way that takes us outside of ourselves, um, Moses' language in Exodus 33, I just don't want to go up from here unless your presence goes with me, us, because how will we be known from all the other people on the face of the earth? unless Because we can have good apologetics and all kinds of cute little hermeneutical moods, and there's something about the presence, and there's something about the presence of God in the cosmos. And I have a very, you know, robust pneumatology that's related to my view of scripture. It's related to my view of life. You know, that, that the creation is inhabited by the spirit, held by the spirit, vivified by the spirit, my body filled with the spirit. Uh, the whole world will one day be filled with that spirit. And um, uh, so that the, um, I think they have to be taken outside of that world somehow mm-hmm. in a way that um, only God can do. And, and the hermeneutic I use in my feminist hermeneutics is, and I use it in Job too, is that the Spirit's work in the text is the same as the Spirit's work in creation. Um, and that is, um, you know, sometimes feminist hermeneutics have at the beginning place there of the hermeneutic of suspicion which I'm all about, but I think there's a pre-space there of grief. And Hmm. we don't often use the term grief in language of hermeneutics. And so I see that the the Spirit is at work in the text, grieving over the brokenness, as the Spirit is at work in creation, grieving over that brokenness, and then brooding in a way that... um, now, the spirit was over the face of the water, stirring them up, not a passive brooding, but a real fanning of it. And so the spirit grieves, the spirit broods and transforms. And it's just that um, sometimes that move between brooding and transforming is where I get impatient hmm. because I, I want to get it fixed and <laughs> um, yeah. not, um, not there. Yeah. Uh, so, well, it won't change anyone's mind these days, right? But the thing is, on that very point, um, 
You mentioned earlier, it's like you have a robust pneumatology. You, you're, the spirit is all over the place, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, I'm one of those crazy kind, you know, dreams. Well, I think Paul would agree with you, frankly. But, the, the, you know, the, um, the others that we're talking about, and, and not in a pejorative sense, but those who might need to be convinced of things, you're, I think you're saying they don't live in that space. They, they might not share that robust pneumatology where – you know, it's the Spirit's presence in creation all around us, everything we do, everything we think in us and other people. It And it, maybe part of the problem is how the intellect is very central mm-hmm. in a lot of Western Christianity. And oh, yeah. maybe almost maybe all of it, sort of, not really. And it's easy to pick on evangelicals or fundamentalists, but, you know, mainline churches, it's, it's a part of sort of who we are and letting go of that and – you know, I'm not saying necessarily become Pentecostal, but I mean it's contemplative, right? It's it's the Richard Roars of the world and other people like that. So, but yeah, that's it's hard to get people to. Well, you can't get people to do anything, but it's hard to have those kinds of serious theological discussions when you have very different starting points about just the nature of reality and that how your religion works. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's uh, for me, it's. The rational is, you know, it, it's not rational versus irrational. It's transrational too. You know, there is irrationality. There is the right. There is. It's good to be rational, but then there's this transrational that it, that is almost like a synergy of the mind and the and and, um, and the spirit in a way that I believe the most creative moments in our human history can take place with that transrationality about it and. Um, that is where things begin to change, I believe. And that's like embracing your full humanity. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's not like weird stuff. It's actually humanity at that point and not limiting ourselves to what we can test or what we can can prove, even what we can prove from verses in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Right. I really like what you said before about Paul, like, like walking around the room trying to figure out how to explain what a family structure might look like in in the Greco-Roman world where you have a certain hierarchy and, you know, maybe even like rubbing his temples and muttering to himself as he, as he walks on because it's hard. And I, and I think, again, I want to get back to that just because I think I, I talk to people a lot who struggle with this. I think it's very important to, as obvious as it sounds, look at somebody like Paul who has a lot to say about women and to try to look at that in the context of what Paul's world was like and how he's trying to bring some redemptive influence to that and to say, okay, what does the gospel look like here? Here. And yeah. Paul's answer may not be our answer today. No, right? because we are not there. Right. And the Spirit still is here. Yes, exactly. Right. The Spirit is not simply located in the text. And I believe that if we have the core of it, then our here and there will have a match in a way that carries that redemptive thread through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that from this kind of fundamental or robust view of the Spirit? That is the same Spirit at work in Paul as in the text, as in us, and somehow that works together for this kind of redemptive trajectory? I think so, yeah. So, when someone says, yeah, but the biblical view is… Oh. That's that's the hard part because that that's a discussion that you have to back up about fifty steps to decide what do you even mean when you say that and why why do you think that's that's the right way to approach these very complicated issues and you know but I mean, you know your church background in the nineteenth century eighteen fifty seven or whatever you said um, they just didn't seem to have that baggage. Like you were not raised with that kind of baggage. Your no, tradition doesn't from have the that Holiness Wesleyan, you know, movement and into the Pentecostal movement. But you know what happened to the Pentecostal movement is that you know we were we were strongly criticized for feminizing the church. You know, one good sign that we were of the devil was that we had women leaders, and yet um, we had not developed our own ways of articulating our faith and uh and during that time of the so-called liberal fundamentalist divide we chose 
at times to go with our very detractors. So we kind of put on Saul's armor using that metaphor, which wasn't a good fit at all. And here we are trying to do this, um, uh, the, uh, the biblical is and, you know, flatten, flattening the text, doing our, doing our proof text. And um, when you have a culture that's not as highly educated as um, a lot of cultures then, and because we were a movement among the oppressed or poor, uh, you get literalism coming in pretty strongly. And mm-hmm. uh, then the dispensationalism that influenced our movement. So it, we became we became sometimes like the very people that would have condemned us to hell. Uh, we adopted their language. We even used their books. So, I mean, it's like, you're talking about self-hatred. <laughs> right. Well, that's sort of like what you said before. I'm seeing a connection between what you said with the movement from prophetic to priestly to institutionalizing. Because, you know, the prophetic is all about what's next. Let's explore the the world's a great place. God is doing something amazing. Come explore it. But at some point, people say, we need some rules here. And we, we got to make this all work together. We can't let this get out of hand. You know, the second generation isn't going to get it. And that's, I don't know. How do, okay, how do you get over that? It's hard because I think that, that generation creates its own uh, people who who react against it and then they just kind of go off on some kind of trajectory that's not even in the neighborhood mm-hmm. or you have the enforcers who continue you know to go along with mm-hmm. that uh, so it's it's kind of hard to get out of that second um, second movement one of the the things about the seminary where I teach is and why I've stayed there for 32 years is that when we uh, a group of us you know, the seminary started in the late seventies and a group of us came around 1984 to 1986. And we had degrees from various places, uh, but we were, um, it's almost like we were being gathered. We didn't necessarily see it as something. It was like a gathering of scholars who had the same questions. We were young. We were in our thirties and we were disillusioned with how our movement had lost some of its core beliefs, you know, anti-war, um, anti-violence, uh, women, pro-women, and other things. And so, and we read Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination, you know, yeah. and we saw that we could help uplift what we call the primal faith of a movement, you know, reactivate that, bring that back in without having to deconstruct everything in a way that would just be unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have enjoyed that task with my colleagues through the decades of working out what that would mean. Okay, if it's not evangelical hermeneutics, what does it look like, you know, and and it may be more like the Orthodox over here, more like the Roman Catholics over there, and, and this and that. So it's fascinating to see how um, our conversations have evolved through the years. And it's easy to have those conversations. It's actually joyful and life-giving to have those conversations without the enforcers. Yeah, because they want you to stop that. Again, that sounds very either or, you know, us against them kind of stuff. But just just as sort of like um, just a general descriptor, the enforcer types, you know, uh, that's that they exist. You know, and, they, you know, they run institutions sometimes. But uh, And I'll just quote Karl Marx here about this too. Okay, while we're at it, sure. <laughs> I've warned my colleagues and we've had some <laughs> tension about this. So they know, they know that I'm saying this, but – you know, that the, the revolution that you are a part of, that first generation, this cadre of scholars, or, or you're, you know, you're building a nation, you're building a seminary or a church. Um, and, you know, the, but the, the revolution that you're working on has, is so easy to harden into ideology. And then uh, it's because there's power in that, too. And, and then the next generation might look different than you, and you don't like that. So, it's so easy if you look throughout history of the revolutionaries to become the enforcers. And then it, it shuts down 
the uh, work of the Spirit in the era that you're in. And that's, I mean, you talked about Bergman and the prophetic imagination. That's the story of the monarchy, in a sense, in the in, yeah. the, in the Hebrew Bible. It's an old, it's an old problem, and it just keeps going. Well, and you know, I have a, just this question as we as we wrap up our time here is, you, what's the anecdote to that? What have you found that keeps you in this? revolution mode or in this prophetic mode that doesn't allow you to settle and become part of the establishment or the institution that starts to set up boundaries and starts to enforce rules and how what are some practices or ways of thinking maybe just really practically for our listeners that's kept you from settling into that mode of being that's a very good question i believe that in my own life i it has been to always be open to the other and a lot of my work has been ecumenical work, you know, World Council. I was involved in the Roman Catholic Pentecostal dialogue for a while. And and Mennonites, I've spent a lot of time with Mennonites. So, being with those outside gives, the, uh, gives you, uh, you're not just kind of circling your wagons and just going over everything, you know. You can create your own ghettos very easily. Um, but on the other hand, having a, a deep appreciation for your own tradition and and the worst ecumenist is the person who hates their own people you know who so easily throws them under the bus and yeah. um are shame-based and that you believe that the outside reading is the best reading and you're always looking for the outside affirmation so that kind of tension of of having your own inside reading and there's an article that Brueggemann did years ago on the legitimacy of a sectarian hermeneutic and based upon the Syrians who came to the wall you know and mm-hmm. and, and 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 one and the people behind the wall said uh, speak to us in your language we know it you know we in other words behind the wall you can have your own language and then outside the wall, learn the language of others. And that's a good, healthy tension. There is a legitimacy, I think, in a sectarian hermeneutic and Mm -hmm. finding that um, space. And younger ones coming in, uh, they, I learn from them. I grow with them. I, um, I want to see how they see the world and then they can help me relate to that as I relate to them. And that those are some of the things that mm-hmm. I, ways I've practiced that. And, you know, at the podcast, we feel the same way about learning from our guests and all that and, and from feedback and comments. So I think that's, that's a very important thing to sort of uh, leave with us here. So listen, Cheryl, we we uh, have come to the end of our time. So Ooh, that was people, wasn't it though? I mean, this goes so quickly. But um, okay, people are going to want to find you. So what's your home address and your social security number and what else do we need? <laughs> I was going to say not in a creepy way, but that's no. definitely in a creepy way. But yeah, like on social media, <laughs> you, uh, Twitter, Facebook, that kind of thing. I'm or? on Twitter. Uh, okay. And I'm not on Facebook, really, because, you know, after the election and all, it just got a little difficult for me. Uh, in my tradition, I think there was one day I had been called having a Jezebel spirit two or three times before <laughs> noon. So I just went off of Facebook. That was too much for me. Yeah, I get, I get it. Yeah. So, so you're on Twitter. What's your handle on, on Twitter? Yeah, it's... Um, I, I always have to find mine, too. I don't know what mine is, but... Yeah, I know. They'll find it. Jonathan Martin helped me set it up. Okay. <laughs> preached for him years ago, and he He's worked that out for me. Uh, it is CB with the under slash. Yeah. Underline, CB underline Johns. Okay, good. Okay, so we can find you there. And um, any any books or other projects you're working on at the present time that people can be on the lookout for? Yeah, I um, hopefully in March we'll have this manuscript out, um, this book through Brazos Press. Um, seven transforming gifts of menopause a spirit uh, unexpected spiritual journey it's an intersection of women's studies spirituality and developmental psychology oh, wow. and feminist theology it's kind of uh, i don't think there's another book out there at least that's what people are telling me who've written mm-hmm. it um, right. that brings all these together i kind of look at it like a 
Richard Rohr's Falling Upward for Women. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Any Anything else? I'm working on this manuscript that I hope to go with Baker on, uh, re-enchanting the text and uh, a Bi- the Bible for a new generation. So some of the things that I was talking about, about my understanding of the Bible and its nature okay. there. So that's where people can go if they want to hear you uh, talk about the Bible and how it works and, and how to read it well. Yeah, that's great. I don't okay. have a website, but maybe by the time this this I'm supposed to, my agent has told me I have to with its book, these books coming out. Yeah. And I've been afraid to, honestly, Peter, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that I would get in trouble by having one. Uh, mm-hmm. so, but I'm going, I need to do that. And so I'll let you know before the podcast comes out. Okay. It probably will be before the podcast comes out. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Cheryl, thank you so much for, for being with us. We had a great time and learned a lot, and I and I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy and gravitate to what you had to say. I've had a delightful conversation with you guys. Thank you so much, Jerry. Sure. Let, let's do it again. All right. Let's do it again. See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, we appreciate your presence here with us. And if you get a chance in the next few months from when this airs, Cheryl's book will be coming out called Seven Transforming Gifts of Menopause, An Unexpected Spiritual Journey. And one of the things that we talked about with her was how the Bible intersects with a lot of this. And I know of someone who wrote a recent book about how the Bible actually works, uh, our very own Peter N. So if you haven't had a chance to check out that book, How the Bible Actually Works, I would encourage you to do that. Pick it up. We're all fine books are sold. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. So it's really nice hearing Cheryl's perspective on a very important topic from a point of view that maybe we don't hear all the time. Yeah, I, I think that's, I don't have anything to say. I know. <laughs> I've said it all. <laughs> I'm, I've got nothing. <laughs> I, I ran out. I have like a bunch of notes, but they're all really messy, and I'm I don't know where done. to go from here. I'm done. So, okay, dang right. it. I could have went into Okay. I just, I couldn't. Uh, that's right. I took too many notes. That was my problem. Let's go with that. <laughs>